has been teasing us with talk of a rotary revival for years. The RX Vision, the Vision Coupe, a new RX7, or will it be RX9? Hopes have been raised again. Yes, it's time to strap in for another edition of the Cars Guide podcast, the show that takes you beyond the test drive. This is episode 195, Mazda RX on again. I'm Cars Guide Deputy Editor James, and joining me to discuss Mazda's undying passion for Felix Vunkel's mechanical masterpiece are Deputy News Editor Justin. Hello. And key contributor Chesto. Hello. We'll open the BD roller door and peer into the far reaches of the Cars Guide garage in these COVID constrained times, looking back on our hero cars and memorable drives. Then we'll dive into your feedback. YouTubers, if you want to plot your own adventure, you can jump ahead courtesy of the time codes in the notes below, and you can click on the chapter markers in the timeline. So let's hit the start button. And Chester, the catalyst for all of this is a story that you've uh, you've written this week, where Mazda's been eyeing a kind of race car rivaling uh, RX with rotary power. It's back on the table. Reports out of Japan. Can you give us a thumbnail in the, in the latest bit of this RX on-again, off-again saga? I can. So, look, the, the RX on-again saga probably began back in 2015 where that's my dog in the background. She loves a rotary as well. Um, <laughs> yes. They started back in 2015 when Mazda re- revealed something called the RX Vision Coupe uh, at the Tokyo Motor Show, and it was a, it's a stunning bit of kit. A photo is going to pop up of it on the screen. Got everyone very excited, salivating the idea of Mazda not only returning to, its, to, to something approaching a sports car, but also returning to its RX and rotary-powered routes. Now, unfortunately, we are, six years later, we get to see that vision, but things are happening in the Mazda space. So for quite a long time now, they have been teasing the idea of a rotary revival. However, it's not as quite as exciting as it sounds, at least initially, because their vision was to use it as a kind of range extender for their electric vehicles. So in much the same way that Nissan's e-power works, the rotary engine would be used to charge the battery. The battery would be used to power the wheels. That's how that kind of ecosystem would work. So not the rotary, the big thumping rotary that we all recall from our youth. But then that changed this week with reports out of Japan that not only are they planning a rotary revival, but they're planning a rotary performance revival in the way that we all kind of know and love it. Now, details are very, very thin on the ground at the moment, of course, but basically the view now is that they can link rotary technology with hydrogen technology to create a new performance car for the brand and even potentially a new race car for the brand in the same ilk as uh, Toyota's Corolla hydrogen-powered race car. So that's kind of where we're at at the moment. Again, it's still pretty thin on the ground for the time being, but reports out of Japan suggest that the interest is increasing astronomically and if they can get approval to do it, this is the latest quote, if they can get approval to do it, they'll do it within the next three years. So there's even a kind of rough time frame attached to it. So exciting stuff for Rotary fans. (laughs) And, Justin, we've recently reported on some uh, patent-type submissions or, or approvals. Can you fill in the gaps there? Yeah, that's right. So quite interestingly, uh, last week, some patents came out that were filed uh, in Japan in January, January 16, 2020. So not that long ago. And if you look at the patents, they suspiciously look like the rear end of a production version of the RX Vision. Like the bodywork is that you can see is absolutely identical, but you can tell they've also gone to the lengths of, of making it production ready. So Clearly, given it was filed in, in 2024 years on from the reveal of the RX Vision, you can tell that the reveal of that concept wasn't it for that program. They've clearly, Mazda, has been working away uh, on this project for some time. And given it was only 18 months ago that these patents were filed, you've got to believe that at least up until recently, they were seriously considering still putting the RX Vision into production. And the, and the fact that those patents had been filed only came to light relatively recently. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Last yeah. week. So they yeah. only were published or reported on um, last week, but uh, have been around for, you know, about 18, um, 18 months now. Yeah. There's, there's so much to, to try and dissect there. Sorry, Chester. I said it's bloody exciting. Does it feel to anyone else that we're somehow strapped into some kind of weird time machine? Suddenly Toyota's doing performance cars. Nissan's got a new Z car happening. Mazda's looking at RX. It's like we're headed back to the golden years of Japanese. Uh-huh. It's fantastic. Well, but There's the, nothing it, wrong with it that. It is fantastic. The, the challenge is to find a way to capture some of the spirit 
of those older models, you know, the older Z cars, the RXs, mm-hmm. et cetera, in an era where internal combustion is under more, pardon the pun, pressure than it ever has been yep. um, in terms of regulations and, and just emissions kind of restrictions. And the rotary was never a clean engine um, to start yeah. with. That's, that's what brought it undone uh, largely in the first place. So to try and make it a clean green thing is a big challenge. But to yeah. that point, though, or Chester's point earlier, I reckon if we do see an RX-7 or RX-9 or 8 or whatever they decide to call it, RX Vision, um, it could very well be a plug-in hybrid or a range extender hybrid or whatever where rotary is part of the equation, but certainly not the sole engine because you're never going to get the efficiency from a from a rotary, you think, um, on its own, uh, okay. not in 2021 or beyond. I mean, that's why the timing's so perfect for this, so because it, the problem with the rotary engine wasn't necessarily rotary tech; it was the way it talked to petrol and and mm. consumed it was the yeah. issue. So if you can replace the petrol part of that component with something, whether that's a battery or whether it's green hydrogen, suddenly its efficiency isn't uh, is no longer a question. So exactly, yeah. and I've got to say, the first time I came across experiments with hydrogen was at BMW in the late 1980s. And it was a seven series being fueled up with hydrogen as an inter- with an internal combustion engine. So hydrogen as the direct fuel in the cylinders. And it looked like something out of a NASA kind of space launch. There were people in white suits and protective gear and it was, there was steam going all around the place. It was super low temperature. Yeah. Went, wow. So there's BMW who, whether or not they dropped it like a stone or kept on with it, that is something that is occupying the minds of Toyota, for example. That Corolla race car is a three-cylinder hydrogen-powered internal combustion engine. The issue being that hydrogen is just not as energetic as gasoline. Gasoline is so great (laughs) um, as a combustive material, it's trying to replicate that somehow. Um, and various people are, t- are tinkering with it, you know. Here's the fun part about that. So, and and people who know me and or even listen to this podcast or have read anything I've ever written know that I'm uh, no mechanic and no engineer. But the uh, word word out of Japan is that essentially the, the issue, I guess, with with hydrogen as a sole uh, fuel source in a combustion engine is, of course, its combustibility. Right. That that's the the, the biggest issue there. But they say the way that rotary solves a rotary engine solves that issue is it reduces engine heat spots. It runs at a, it can run at a cooler temp, and thus is actually technically more compatible with hydrogen fuel than Amazing. You know, than a conventional ice engine. So there is potential there. Wow, fantastic! So right, at that well, point, do we potentially see in the future other manufacturers getting into rotary? Well, I mean, if it ends up being the long-term solution with hydrogen, I don't know. There's so much to like about a rotary. I mean, in terms of its packaging, it's such a compact mm. uh, piece of engineering that the output compared to weight and size is is hard to beat. Mercedes-Benz mm. was in love with it for a long time. I mean, you think about all of those uh, C111 um, experimental cars, the mm. iconic orange cars. A lot of them were were rotary. <laughs> Um, but they gave up on it after a while. They couldn't make it durable enough. Mm. Um, and I don't think they were in love with the uh, fuel efficiency. Or efficient, efficient enough, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. No. So, so and, and Mazda, over time, this is what I say, they are culturally joined at the hip with rotary. Yeah. Um, you know, you think about that amazing Le Mans win um, with the 787, yeah, 787B, Johnny Herbert, then a Formula One pilot, they win Le Mans with a four-rotor um, Mazda rotary. That has got to resonate right through the whole company and a series of rotary-powered cars from RX2s, 3s, 4s, onto the 7 and, and onto RX8. They love it and they want to do it so badly. I'm sure they're exploring every avenue possible mm-hmm. uh, to make it happen. The interesting issue, though, for me is it still becomes an easy... It doesn't solve the infrastructure issue, does it? Like... Whether you're using hydrogen to to power an engine or power a, or to power a fuel cell vehicle, you still need to get the hydrogen into the vehicle in some capacity, and that remains the issue yet to yeah. be solved. The, the, the battery electric solution is so easy; we plug in at home. Um, if, if we have to, we use public charging stations. But more and more reports suggest that fewer people use them than we expected. Most people do charge at home. Yeah. Um, but again, with hydrogen, you've still got that issue of where are we getting the hydrogen from and how are we getting it into the vehicle? So there's still plenty of barriers to climb over before it becomes mainstream tech. There are. And, and in some ways that hydrogen's produced, the coal that's burnt to produce yeah. the electricity to make the hydrogen, you're better off just burning the coal. 
that's right. there's more energy in that coal than there is in the hydrogen that's produced. So you have to find more efficient ways to produce hydrogen from cleaner methods. And there are various people, you know, working on that. But you think about a company like Porsche, it's got this amazing back catalogue of 911s and they want the 911 to continue on because much and all as the McCann, Machan is their biggest seller. The 911 is their iconic car and they want those cars to continue circulating on public roads. They're making big investments on synthetic fuel. And I'm sure they're either experimenting themselves or watching very closely what others are doing with hydrogen and and other ways of making the internal combustion engine live on. So it's a pretty hot area, pardon the pun, um, at the moment. And I'm sure Mazda is looking all over the place. Um, I think either way, rotary is not going to end with Mazda. I mean, we've got the MX-30 small SUV getting a rotary range extended, despite what some reports have said, is still uh, coming next year, according to Mazda. So we're going to see it in some form. But I guess all of us enthusiasts would just love to see a sports car, see that RX line continue. But we're going to get it one way or another. Look what GR has done for Toyota. Toyota went from being... You know, and, and I say this with all due respect to Toyota, they're a mass, they were a massive selling brand, but my Lord, they were like sleeping tablets on wheels, right? And then all of a sudden, seemingly overnight, they're producing these unbelievable little performance cars. The GIRS is an absolute gem. I've got no doubt the GR Corolla will be just as good. They're producing really cool stuff. They've got Supras. You've got Nissan investing in, in Z again. Yep. What what it can do for a brand is so impressive. I, I actually think Mazda needs something cool like an RX or, or or the modern equivalent of it to put that brand back on the. Well, floor. I reckon I reckon you'd be mad if you are an enthusiast driver. You'd be mad not to love the way an electric motor behaves. You know, it has got that incredible. Even in your your kind of cooking version electric cars, they're quick because they produce their torque from step off, and yeah. and you you get going. They're really nippy. The thing that's missing for people that do enjoy driving um, historically is noise. You know, the noise isn't there. So a hydrogen combustion engine, there's there's some vision and sound on YouTube of this Corolla. It makes a noise. It has a beating heart. You know, it, it has all those things. It's the elephant in the room for electric performances. It's all great, except there's no noise. And That's right. a big part of driving a car for me is hearing that that engine um, run. And yeah. the, the characteristic, when I used to do some club motorsport, I'd book a, you know, um, a carport at the race circuit for the weekend and we would always be next to a rotary. And my, my wife would come along. We were pre-kids then and she did the right thing. She's not in a motor racing, not in a car. She'd come along, <laughs> help out. We'd have the fold-out chair and she'd sit there and she'd <laughs> next to us for the whole weekend. <laughs> and she'd just get this, but that's the noise. That's yeah. the noise that people love with rotaries and enthusiast drivers love whatever noise their car makes yeah so you're saying jc that you're not a fan of the soundtracks that are being composed for electric cars i mean we've got hans zimmer working with bmw trying to make a very cool yeah. soundtrack for their cars you're not into no. that no no i i don't know it's like you're being uh fooled by a a, a three-card trick or or whatever yeah. Yeah. i don't I, it's hard to say sometimes i've been fooled i've been in a car and i thought oh dude it sounds great and then later on someone taps you on the shoulder and, uh, oh, you know it's synthetic. You know it's coming through. Yeah. Oh, you just feel like you've, I don't know, been taken in somehow. Um, that's but I will, I will say this for Porsche, you know, yes, the sound remains an issue, but my Lord, that Taycan answers oh questions. Like it is, a, it is a proper performance car, that thing, even yeah. in its base model, quite frankly, and it just gets more insane the higher up it climbs. But, mate, that's a proper car. It is incredible, that car. But uh, electric sports sound is something that has, that's what they call it, the fake noise. But I reckon, I don't know what you think, Chester, but I reckon the electric sports sound in, in Taycan actually kind of sounds cool. I mean, it is very, like, futuristic, very space-like. Um, but I'd, if I had it in the car, I'd almost have it on the whole time because it yeah. adds a bit of fun to the experience when you're accelerating and decelerating as well. I, I totally agree with you. I reckon the absolute worst thing an EV car maker could do would be replicate a V8 engine noise. <laughs> yeah. That would just be yeah. in, in Agree. But well, they create a new sound, you know, why not? I think if you're up front in that way and you're dealing, it's, a, it's an obvious thing. This is an electric motor. We're going to create something to, to generate some sound around it. Fine. Fair enough. But if you buy subdivision, is trying, you're trying to enhance um, an internal combustion engine through the stereo, that's where I feel jipped. 
Yeah. I think I think a few GTIs did that for a little while there, didn't they? Didn't the Apollo GTI, I think, memory serves, have a little a yeah. speaker, I think. Still do. Still do. Well, oh, yeah. Some of it is just taking the actual genuine, maybe it's the induction noise from the engine bay and piping it more directly into the cabin. That I can live with. Yeah. But actually synthesizing an engine noise and, yeah, yeah. and supplementing the exhaust or whatever through the stereo, I'm not a fan. It's the sort of thing you can imagine Elon Musk doing, thumping through, you know, LA with a big V8 engine snarl out of his side. out of his side of a truck. Yeah. <laughs> but you have seen that some Model S owners given their Model S a, like a Hellcat sound or something like that. But it's also external as well. So when it accelerates, it sounds like a Hellcat's just taken off. Wow. But it's just a Model S. I prefer the people that have dropped an LS1 in their Tesla Model S. <laughs> <laughs> that's all that's that's a motor to engine swap that that i think is quite funny um but but i don't know about you guys i've got some great um kind of rotary memories having driven rx7s and rx8s and whatever but i think that fd rx7 the very swoopy curvaceous uh car was hard to beat and yeah. when it arrived it was such a breakthrough it did things like the one thing i remember about it was the tail lights was one of the first cars to have the the plastic taillights form the outer edges of the car. That hadn't yeah. really happened so much. It was just part of the form of the back of the car. Such a breakthrough to look at. It was a bit tight for headroom for me. I, I remember I, I'm slightly longer in the torso than the legs, and it was always a challenge. But to drive it, it was such a great car to drive. Mate, for me, it was the uh, the RX3. Growing up, um, we all, me and all my mates had – just madly in love with Japanese uh, performance cars. And I, I had an old Datsun 260Z. A mate of mine had an RX3. Another mate had an LT Celica. And it was just, it had to be the, the, uh, the just the coolest collection of old Unreal. Cars. What a great trio. Soft spot for the, uh, for the RX, the RX3, I must admit. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right, Will, look, it could be on, it could be off. We'll, um, we'll see what transpires. Those uh, patent filings are very, very interesting, no matter what is under the bonnet. Uh, yep. of that car we'll see what transpires there but let's get your rx uh, thoughts out there listeners and viewers tell us where you sit on all of that but are they now, a dead horse jc that's the question i want answered yep. mm, okay just in love in with six rotary years now. for the sake of it being a rotary are there actually smarter avenues they should be pursuing if they take off the rose-colored glasses um, i don't know I reckon if you walk the halls in the back rooms of hiroshima when you're at mazda and and the, the walls of people don't see, I reckon it'd be filled with RX7 shots and oh, you know, yeah. the Le Mans oh, cars. It's, it's just part of the joint. I, I can't, they can't help themselves. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, let's move to our garage, and we're going to peer into the dusty, dark corners at the back, not the, not the more modern ones at the front. We're going to look back. Justin, I'd like to start with you, please. You were asked to nominate a time, place, people, vehicle that sticks in your memory. Fill us in on the one that came to mind for you. Well, yeah, the one that came from, to mind for me is currently on my shoulder, if you're watching uh, YouTube, that being the Ranger Raptor. I was uh, fortunate enough to go to the international launch for the Raptor, which just happened to be in Darwin. So not so much overseas for us, but it was for Asia Pacific Media that were joining us there. But um, yeah, we were fortunate enough in July 2018, so a few years ago now, just before the Raptor came out in October that year, uh, to yeah, head to Darwin and uh, or Northern Territory more specifically to drive the to the, the Raptor. And I guess when you think about memorable drives or experiences, we get to do a lot of cool stuff uh, on media launches typically, and this was for me by far the coolest. Um, it was a fairly surreal experience. But anyway, we got to go there. I was working for another publication at the time, but Crafty was there for uh, Cars Guide. And um, man, did we have a good time. So we got to uh, head out to a station. I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was a very, very large station uh, in Northern Territory. And basically Ford Asia Pacific had more or less purchased or acquired some of the land on that station for this two-week period. That was about two and a half square kilometres, I think, they could do absolutely anything with. So over a few weeks leading up to the event, they brought excavators in and everything, and they basically overhauled the whole thing, turned it into an off-road racetrack, all these different exercises they set up for us um, so we could experience the Raptor. And, of built course, a, this was built the... A, built a disco. They had some... They had a cafe for the... Yeah. Wow. That's true. We had everything. A mini hotel. Oh, just scrumptious. No, not quite. Okay. 
Not, not quite. It was just basically dirt everywhere, but they fashioned everything into things that they could actually use. But of course, this was the first time that we'd driven uh, the Raptor at that point in time, the first time we'd experienced a Ranger Raptor. Um, so it was quite exciting to obviously experience that model, but even more exciting the format of the event. But just to, to give you the cliffs notes, we uh, <laughs> got to, well, for me, the highlight was definitely the jump section. So they had a, a long stretch of road with uh, jumps and basically we were told we had a uh, driving instructor in the passenger seat with us just floor it have a good run up and see how you go and so we were doing these jumps at 140 and we're just going bang 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 and you would expect you know if you're mid-air at 140 and coming down it's going to hurt on the way down but the fox shocks in the raptor are so bloody good that was like a pillow you'd come back down and you just wouldn't feel anything it would just absorb it and they were the best best way to possibly demonstrate how did good they fly, were did it fly level or did you feel it kind of dipping its nose was it in the air long enough for you to get a sense of how it was balanced up in the air uh they were pretty in terms of air time we probably weren't airborne for that long i wouldn't say so yeah it was a fairly quick up and down but they were rolling bumps as well so once you leveled out again you were pretty much off again so Unreal. i think it was about four or five consecutively but wow. you just had your foot down the whole time and just holding the wheel straight and saying all right let's see how this goes but it was just hilarious because every time you'd have all four wheels off the ground, you just have the biggest smile on your face and you come down expecting to feel the crash, but then it never does because it just so beautifully soaked up the crash. Did, um, did Crafty have a go at it going the wrong way? You know, yeah, I, he did, I'd actually. He, yeah. he, he managed to actually do mortal, mortal peril. He managed to do a backflip, which we weren't asked to do, but for some reason he decided he'd, he'd give it a go. And we're like, you know, I'm not going to try that later myself. It's uh, no, so that that was a that was a great little thing uh, as well. But they also, um, as I mentioned earlier, set up a little racetrack, off-road racetrack for us. So Raptor's got a Baja like uh, racing mode, if you will. Um, so we were driving in too high around this track, um, kicking the rear end out in the dust. Um, it was a tight little track as well, pretty technical, muddy in sections as well. So you really got to experience the off-road, but also how quick it can be off-road. Um, yeah, it was just phenomenal. But we also did some highway driving as well, and the Raptor is noticeably heavier than a wild track or anything else in the Ranger range. And at that point in time, that was the first time we'd driven the new bi-turbo engine. So that was a good insight as well as to how that would proliferate across the range and, and what have you. But anyway, my point being on the highway, it was noticeably slow. Like we're talking 10 right. seconds at best to hundred. So you're like, this is not a very fast performance vehicle, so to say, but the second you took it off road, I don't think there's anything that would have been able to keep up with it. Right. It's composure um, is unrivaled. It was ridiculous. So no 140 kmh jumps on the highway. That was mainly on the off-road bit. Mainly crafty, tr crafty tried. Gave it, a, um, gave it a crack. He would. Yeah. We told him to stop, but again, he really wanted to attempt that backflip once more. But I'm like, <laughs> probably not on the tarmac, mate. Well, that sounds amazing. And did you? It was good fun. If you were on that station, yeah, was that an overnight stay there as well? Did you kind of camp under the stars, or what was the story for the the thing? We didn't. We were fortunate enough to have uh, lunch there, and I believe what we ate was caught at the station. So oh, I can't oh. quote. Uh, I can't promise you what actually went in my mouth. It was some oh. sort of. Meat. I don't know what it was, but Aussie fauna. Aussie fauna. <laughs> Jesto is hating this. Sorry, mate. Um, no, we didn't stay there, JC, but we did have lunch there. But um, one funny thing is the station that we were on was so large that the station manager, the only way for him to feasibly get around was on a helicopter. And he was telling us that uh, if we looked off into the horizon from where we were uh, positioned ourselves, uh, he would get in the helicopter. It would take him 20 minutes to get, uh, sorry, he would get to the horizon and then it would be another 20 minutes on the helicopter before he got to the end of the station. That's wow. how big it was. Yeah. It wow. was massive. So again, they were quite happy to give Ford a little slice of the land for a couple of weeks to chop up. And um, we certainly chopped it up. That's for sure. They should have hung onto it and just put a dealer there. 100%. <laughs> I would have come out. I would have made the trick. I mean, it would have been the test, best test drive you've ever done, the, right? The test area. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That sounds amazing. So good. Unreal. Good, good on fun. you. All right, Justin. Thank you. Um, Chesto, it's a slightly yeah. different location and possibly a different temperature um, and cer different. certainly a different vehicle. Correct. So mine's also behind me there. That's the uh, the i30N uh, way back in 2018. And the road it's on is called the Grossglockner High Alpine Road or Grossglockner Pass in Austria. And I'll, I'll peek behind the sort of motoring journal curtain for a moment. A, a lot of the stuff we do uh seems exciting from the outside world but actually isn't really you know there's a lot of stuff we do that, that it's just work 
But then the, the flip side of that is there is some stuff we do that is genuinely uh, well, pretty amazing. To that, to that point, Chesto, it might be the most glamorous location in the world, but all you're thinking about is got to get the video done, got yeah, yeah, to get Going to interview this person. It's all exactly. it's all on. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. So, yeah. but but, but we, have, we are lucky. You know, there's been this morning as I was thinking about this, there, there was you know it was a toss up between this road, maybe the BMW One M Coupe at the Stelvio Pass, or the 488 Pista at the Fiorano Circuit in Italy. There are lots of lots of great sort of experiences. But the, the reason this one specifically sticks out in my mind is because. We'd just flown into Rome for the launch of this vehicle. And uh, because I have a penchant for danger, I had a prawn cocktail at the Dubai um, Dubai Transit no. Lab, which held me like I'd been shot by a sniper. And I was, I was just dead to the world for about three consecutive days. And then when I finally kind of came good, I, I'd lost the most of the rest of the group who had moved on from Rome to this road. And so Hyundai, without mentioning any names, said to me, look, you, you, we've just got to catch up. So any, any fines we collect on the way through, well, let's not worry about it. There was a pretty high-speed run down to the cross circuit. By the time I got there, the, the prawn fog had list, lifted just a <laughs> This is a literal prawn fog set, setting on the mountain. And I, look, I, I've driven a few mountain roads in, in Europe over the years, but it's every time I'm there, it's just staggering. It's a reminder that the things we call mountains in Australia – are mere speed bumps. These are these are proper proper hills. Yeah. Uh, the road conditions are always perfect. There's a passion for cars and driving over there. There does seem to be a fairly, uh, shall we say, loose interpretation of speed limits on, on on some of these on some of these roads. And it was just one of one of those truly kind of life changing life changing up and down moments over that hill. It was wonderful. It's interesting you talk about how um, you know our so called mountains compared to those massive slabs of granite that spike out of the ground um, in Europe. I remember photographing a car um, with a photographer, very nice fellow, Mark Bramley, um, down near Kosciuszko. And we're just driving around. It was summertime. And I said, how tall is Mount Kosciuszko? He goes, 2,229 metres. That's amazing. How did you know that? He goes, postcode for Caring Bar. <laughs> that's, that's where I grew up. Yeah. Wow. So thank you, Mark. I know two things. I'll never forget how high Mount Kosciuszko is, and I know the postcode for Caring Bar. And we yes. were down in Threadbow and looking at a map, and it said 2,220. I said, Mark, 2,220? He goes, Miranda Fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, JC, to put that into perspective, the cross Glockner climbs 2,500 2 metres, right, 2.5K. But yeah. unlike Kosciuszko, it's, you're on the road all the way up and over. Oh, so, totally. Mm. So, you know, at, at Kosciuszko, you get to Charlotte's Pass, I think, is the high point. Then you need to sort of climb from there. But here you, you, you sort of drive up and down. The other thing I'd say about our, our job is that the best thing that happens in it is the surprises, right? So if you go to drive a new 911, for example, you expect it to be good and it invariably is. If you go to drive a new Ferrari, same. With a car like the i30M, it was really Hyundai's first roll of the performance dice. No one knew entirely what to expect from it. This was a brand that hadn't exactly cut its chops on on performance in the past. In fact, it had tried with cars like the Tiburon and things like that that mm. um, were, were vaguely... Mixed, mixed results. M mixed yeah. results. So to get behind the wheel of this little manual hot hatch with this exhaust that was just booming in your ears the entire time and find it to be really well sorted, super fun and engaging, not lightning fast, but just that, that super kind of engaging experience from go to woe, um, thank, thanks in part to, to Albert Beerman, who, who sort of ran M for, at BMW for a long period of time, it was just like this the best surprise ever. It was wonderful. This, at this great super. road, we had a surprisingly great car. It was, yeah, just a good day. Very good day. Very good. And the prawn fog had lifted, which is, you know, a thank double benefit. Thankfully, I did say, I've said this before and I'll say it again, whoever was on uh, room cleaning duties at that Rome Hotel <laughs> was a significant bonus. Did you leave a tip? You probably should have. <laughs> I, left, I left something, JC. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. All right, well, that, that's amazing. Another great one. Um, I'm going to chip in with it's, it's pretty much more about the car um, than the location because the location was fairly... Uh, work a day. It was the uh, Ultimo area of Sydney around the city, no high-speed driving, none of that. It was largely a photographic assignment, but it was the first time I'd had the chance to drive uh, a Jaguar E-Type. 
And this one was, so it was back a while, it was a 1969 Series 1.5, which means it's that beautiful first-generation E-type body with the yep. recessed headlights and the very slim taillights, but with the 4.2-litre engine, which uh, didn't deliver a whole lot more power, but a little more torque. And somehow this one, a red car, it had been restored some years before, but then driven afterwards. So it had the feel of a car that was being used as opposed to this pristine object it was very much a car that you drove this one somehow had the moss gearbox which is a four speed but no synchro on first so the earlier cars i don't i'm not a jaguar historian but anyhow this car had the moss gearbox which was just an extra little challenge to double the clutch into first um and it dropped more jaws and stopped more people in their tracks than just about any car i've ever driven it was breathtakingly beautiful yeah they're gorgeous um it, it, and this, yeah, it, this red, and it's in my collection of, of 50 cars. I've got a little 143rd of it. And Enzo Ferrari called it the most beautiful car ever made. And, boy, you, you, a debate on that would be interesting because I, I think you'd be hard to argue against it. It's such a breathtakingly beautiful car. Yeah, stunning. Um, and for mine, years ago, I learned about the whole throw of the A-pillar as a, a cab forward, cab rear kind of design attribute. So if you follow the A-pillar down to where it would cut through the car, most modern cars, it's about halfway through the front wheel. It tends to dissect the front wheel. Mm -hmm. The E-type, when you continue the A-pillar down, it's about halfway along the car. It, it divides it. The cab is so far back and that nose is so long. It's such a dramatic um, shape. And one of the things I was quietly disappointed about was when Jaguar was working towards the F-type, the, the concept version was called the CX-16, and John uh, and Callum had, had um, designed it. And it had the side opening rear hatch, the same as the E-Type, that really cool rear hatch door that opened sideways. Yeah. And I remember being at a motor show where the coupe version, which ironically followed the convertible um, in the line of, of F-Type reveals, he was there. And I just kind of waddled up to him and said, you didn't get the, the side opening hatch through. And he looked at me like, ah, no, it was obviously a, a bit of a disappointment for him it would have been nice but um that that experience driving that car it felt so special at the time i knew this is a, a rare opportunity it was fantastic yeah unreal mate what a what a gorgeous car my gosh yeah yeah they, just yeah. Don't, make, they don't make them like that anymore do they the uh what, what would be the modern equivalent what's the best looking car on the road I, today? I think the irony is they are they're going to do a i think a recreation run oh, cool. times. i might i might be wrong but um yeah that's gonna Mate, that's a huge thing in the UK at the moment. Aston Martin's yeah. doing a lot of money in, in recreating these uh, these old classics. But So what is the modern... That was the most beautiful car in the world. What would you level that wow, time? that's that? a great In more recent times, probably the Sangyong Actian Sport. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Or, you know, <laughs> what's it called? It was the, um, the uh, St Stavos, the, the people mover thing that looked like Stavik. it was three cars. The Stavik. Yeah, the Sangyong uh, Stavik, I think that's probably the E-type of the modern era. Yeah, um, I agree too. Like Anything three cars combined really. into one. <laughs> but, but how do you recreate something like that? How do you name a car that equals it? I, I don't know whether there is one. Mate, I would argue that one of the more beautiful cars I've seen recently is the Ferrari Roma. That's a right. really nice. Like it's not, yeah. it's not an out there Ferrari, but it's a uh, just a really nice, clean sort of almost retro inspired design philosophy that I think sure. really works for that. I think a lot of people share that opinion, Chester, but I don't know if I dig it myself personally. Okay. I think it's a step back. You've withdrawn your deposit. I know. I, I have. You've, I, I have. Mind, but <laughs> I was going to go pick it up in the middle of the Northern Territory, and then I decided no, no, I'm not going to. But when you think that William Lyons did a lot of this car by eye. You know, there were, it's mm. pre, well pre-computer. You know, he wasn't a drafts person. He was someone who just knew what made a car look good. Yeah. Um, and his his final ode to Jaguar, I think, was the XJ, the original XJ uh, sedan, which, again, is a beautifully proportioned car. So this is really speaking to someone's eye. I think it's uh, extraordinary right. in that way. Well, let me throw a couple more mainstream ones at you and, and, yep. and see what you think. I, I reckon... Potentially controversially, uh, I reckon the Honda E is ah, yeah, yeah. a perfectly designed car. I, 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 I must admit I haven't seen the inside, but I, yeah. I think the exterior, it's a beautiful looking thing. We're talking electric. We've got to talk about Ionic 5 then, Hyundai. That yeah, yeah, that's cool. a knockout. 
Yes, that's so true. The other curveball I'll throw at you, even though I'm not in love with it, I know that a lot of people are, the, the, the uh, modern Mazda 3, the new Mazda 3, people say is a... Right. Uh, Right, one icon, but I, I'm not. Over, I like mm. the old one better. I suppose the, the 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 word icon is thrown around a lot, isn't it? And it's yeah. it's hard to match the longevity of a car that over you know fifty or sixty years yeah. has been causing people to stop and stare. Yeah. Um, you you don't know whether these more modern ones. I I agree with you, Chester. I saw that Honda E as a concept um, at one of the European shows, and it was clearly the car that caught everybody's attention. Not an ounce of fat on it. It was so perfectly retro. And that concept one had a screen from A pillar to A pillar. Yeah, it was just all screen inside. Yeah. So the, the interior was a bit of a breakthrough too. But yeah, that caught a lot of people's imagination. It's a, such a pity um, it's not coming here. I reckon that, it would do well. That's Isn't it funny though that two of the cars we referenced are retro inspired, you know, designed vehicles, things that yeah. reference yesteryear and not anything that's necessarily modern. But you know what the difference is? I reckon modern design, this is a complete tangent, so forgive me, but the, the trap of modern design in cars, I think, is to over-design stuff. When, when people yeah. say retro, I think what they really mean is simple, simple, clean models. Leave it alone. Yeah. yeah. Whereas yeah. I, I just think modern, there are plenty of modern cars, and in fact, Japanese automotive went through a, a period of just creating horrors, but there are like just these over-designed boxes. So, for example, the Civic Type R, Great car, people people love it. Fantastic performance car, not unlikely to win any design awards. I'm <laughs> sorry, you're so you're so wrong. Tung and I, Tung and I both love it. We no. both love it. The no. more offensive, the better. Sorry, keep going. Here's one. Way back in the day, when HSV, its first car out of the box was the Walkinshaw uh, VN SS Group A, mm-hmm. the Batmobile, the 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 one. Now, it was all about trying to make a car that wasn't aerodynamically efficient work in a wind tunnel and on the race circuit. So they had to homologate that. I remember going to the launch of that car and it was at Calder, Calder Race Circuit on the, on the road circuit and I could have driven that thing 24 hours round the clock. I loved it. It was so much fun and so good. Driving it later on a public road, I wanted to have a paper bag on my head because yeah. I just thought this... <laughs> This is so loud and it's so kind of brutish. It's not me. Uh, it could be for other people. It wasn't me. Yeah. I feel the same way in that Civic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I drove one, this bright yellow that looked like someone had had too much Barocca. And I'm same as you, I was kind of like, oh, <laughs> no, embrace it. You want a loud, oh. searing colour? The most anyway, recent one I had was that light blue. Oh, yeah, got plenty of looks, but I was all for it. It's it's the it's the scale of your ego, Justin. It just it's demands true. a car. It demands true. a car like that. But I would it's like true. to hear from our viewers and listeners on this one. Actually, what yeah. is what is the most beautiful modern mm. modern? Uh, I'll give you a, I'll give you a time frame. The last, let's say, the last five years. All right, twenty sixteen to today. Good, perfect, great call. All right. Now, speaking of listeners and viewers, we will move to our feedback from last week. And last week we were talking about red and blue hide and seek. That is, uh, you know, police doing their best to go under the radar, not, not even their radar, but um, uh, catch people by surprise and with unmarked cars. And we had a fair bit of feedback. Sam Wire said he was pulled over in Darwin by an unmarked grey N80 Hilux. So we're talking a mid, mid-90s, uh, best as I can reckon, uh, with an alloy canopy and a ladder on the roof. And he also saw a Sandy Taupe, so the, the classic Sandy Taupe coloured 79 series, so a, a Land Cruiser cab chassis, again with an alloy canopy. They just look like tradie vehicles. So, they, you know, we've talked about bikes on the roof and surfboards and, and um, all those bits of disguise. Uh, but there you go, tradie vehicles in the top end. Yeah. Um, and TGV, the very fast train, said uh, New South Wales police have gone from Falcon Commodore for detective cars, i.e. unmarked cars, to Sonata and 5 Series. Mm -hmm. And he's seen several Hilux and Ranger crew cabs in far west New South Wales. And his big tip is to just look out for LED lights in the front and rear windows because, you know, sooner or later they'll light up. Mm -hmm. But he also made the point that in terms of unmarked speed camera cars, they used to be Territory, they're now Forrester, at least um, in New South Wales. Is it? Are they used in um, Victoria, to your knowledge, Justin? No, no Foresters in Victoria. Seem to be a lot of Klugers in Victoria. Klugers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, they're parked on the nature strip, so he takes pictures of them and reports them to the local council for parking, <laughs> for parking on the nature strip. 
Amazing. Uh, which is a bold move. He's wondering whether they've been fined. Lol. Um, <laughs> but also, I remember when people, when those unmarked cars first became a bit of a thing, some people would pull up right behind the car as if they were broken down and put the bonnet up. Yeah. So that the camera <laughs> didn't have any view of the road. Yeah. Which I thought was a pretty good <laughs> Anything you can do to make yourself feel a little better, I reckon. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Now, um, GTREA, so I don't know whether that's GTREA. To my knowledge, there wasn't a GTR version of the EA Falcon, but it may mean something uh, altogether different. We were talking about the uh, police car collection in... Um, oh, first of all, sorry, he talked about unmarked police car discussion. Not one use of the word pursuit rims, or the phrase, or FE2. Uh, which, of course, are classic Holden kind of terms, the FE2 suspension package. So fair enough, uh, GTREA. Um, and he, see, he says, we touched on the Dubai police fleet, you know, those exotic sports cars, Bayrons and uh, AMG SLSs and whatever. And LC3. He seems to recall a lot of the exotic Dubai police cars are repurposed cars abandoned by owners fleeing the country. Now, I thought that would add up. I did a bit of digging around. I can't actually find any reference to that. Um, what I did find is that because it's a tax haven and because unpaid debts are a case of go direct, directly to jail, um, people do leave their car at the airport and they abandon their houses, cars and just go because they know they'll end up in jail. Mm. But police do auction those cars. Yep. But in terms of the Dubai exotic fleet, there are brands fighting to get in there. They want to have their car represented in the fleet. So I don't think they're using repurposed ones. They're getting brand spankers. Um, to cycle through that that fleet of cars. Yeah. And I it's, have a, big, about it's them, a big PR exercise that you buy. I have heard about them finding plenty of exotics covered in sand, abandoned. Totally. Yeah. There's a famous Enzo, like a Ferrari Enzo, just sitting in a car park covered in, you know, several months, years, whatever's worth of dust. What, what's uh, the sporting rule on that? If, you, uh, if it's been there for seven years, are you able to claim Ooh, it? Good point. If you can sit on the roof for long enough, surely you <laughs> won't. Well, look, some of, the, some of the stuff I read online, and, you know, it may or may not be reliable, was that it's as little as 15 days sometimes um, if uh, someone, if, sorry, 15 weeks. So if someone doesn't come back, that car gets auctioned off. Oh, right. um, but it's obvious some of them have been there longer. Then I went to some auction sites in Dubai, like Dubai Auctions, yeah. and it's uh, workaday cars left, right and centre. Oh, is it really? I couldn't find any Ferrari Enzo's going <laughs> up for auction, put it that way. And all the photographs of the cars for sale, covered in dust. Yeah. I think just everything gets covered in dust <laughs> in, dust. <laughs> in Dubai, put it that way. Amazing. Um, okay, so that was a good one. To Cook, our old mate, we, we were talking about licensing and the, the root cause of, or, or sorry, the default position for police um, in most parts of Australia. These, these speed is the be-all and end-all of it. You know, if we can stop people speeding, everyone will be safe. And, you know, yeah, lower speed will, will play its part, but it just seems to be this panacea that everybody leans on. And to Cook, who uh, he's moved to Australia, he and his wife um, relatively recently, says his, his wife recently went through driver's licence course in Germany. Theory and practice training had to be delivered by professional instructors. Um, so there's no bad habits passed on by family members. It's all, you know, one step removed in that regard and carefully kind of graded and what have you. But then they came to Australia and she's got her real plates in New South Wales. If you're over 25, you don't even need any logbook hours. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't know that. Mm. Um, and he reckons it's not just parents passing on bad habits, siblings, mates, teaching their peers, and I think it's a fair point. You know, that equipping people with the skills to start with, you're going to get a better road safety outcome than just relying on chucking speed cameras out there. Absolutely. I remember when I was learning, my brother famously told me, because he's a little bit older than I, do as I say, not as I do. Um, uh-huh. And needless to say, since then, I've done the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I did a little bit of a... I, I was a driver training person for a while, and part of that was one-on-ones where you'd go to companies and assess their driving or whatever. I was with a person once and we stopped at the lights and they put the car in park. So why did you do that? Well, we stopped. You put the car in park. Just yeah. things like that. Wow. You've got no escape mechanism now. What happens if... So- no. Anyway, I could go on. But um, anyway, Grudlin74 says uh, driving tests need to be harder, but behaviour also needs adjusting. Instead of showing how they're going to catch us, they should be showing us how to be safer. 
And you know what that put me in mind of? In New South Wales, I'm not sure whether it was replicated in other states and territories, but there was a big outdoor campaign where these huge banners would be with a police officer with the big reflective um, aviator shades and the, the words were speeding, you're in our sights. Yeah, I and I that. thought that is the most combative, um, aggressive, counterproductive thing I reckon you could do. I did not agree with that campaign at all. I don't know whether you guys saw it. I, it, it made my blood boil. I'm gonna. I'll keep my comments to a minimum here. Otherwise, I'll go on a, a rant that we'll, and we'll be here for hours. But mate, the, the speed issue in Australia staggers me. The, the 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 one example of it that I always give is in the Northern Territory. They introduced speed limits and road deaths went up as a result of people getting too tired between towns, et cetera. So the introduced speed limits, road deaths went up. So as a result, the government then unlocked the speed limit on a stretch of road just outside of Alice Springs on a 12-month trial. Yeah. Trial went off without a hitch, no fatalities, no accidents, no problems. So at the end of the trial, they reintroduced the speed limits on that road and, and everywhere else. So the question is, well, what was the trial for to prove that... Sure. You know, if, if we've proven that, in fact, it, it, road deaths go down with no speed limits and now we're reintroducing speed limits, mm -hmm. what, what's the purpose? I'd say it coincided with a change of government. I'd say that's what I'd say it corresponded with a change of government. I reckon that would be it. Anyway, it absolutely yes. did. I, Justin, I reckon we should write a column on that. I might uh, do an opinion story. What do you reckon? I reckon it sounds like a good idea. Okay, good. Now, um, we're going to uh, pretty much finish things off with Bill Catapotus. Um, he echoes Byron's frustrated plea for Ford to bring the Bronco here. And he reckons the Maverick would sell like hotcakes. Um, many love the notion of a Ranger, but it's but are too sensible to pay over 60K for a two-ton plus diesel truck to go shopping with. Um, but he would buy a fully loaded Bronco Sport or Maverick top of the line for 55K in a heartbeat. In fact, he says, I'd sell the Orion for that. Um, so that's that's you know that's a big call. He's too he's too sensible to drop sixty, but he dropped fifty five. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah, five no. grand goes a long way, Chester. <laughs> no need to bag the Orion. Great job. Um, his point then, though about the Maverick versus Ranger, like Ranger Raptor, as I mentioned earlier, you know, incredibly capable machine, but most of them <laughs> never go off road, no, which is true. a crime. But a Maverick, perfect. I mean, yeah. you know, much more practical it. size. For a lot of people, that kind of totally lifestyle you Since we moved away from our base utes, utes are, are really now too big to be practical for a lot of people, I, I yeah. think. You know, so there is yeah. there's potential, there's potential there. Yes, but, I, but RAM is very successful yeah. um, at the moment. Um, so, yeah, who knows? Um, but then TGV, the very fast train, came back and said, the Bronco isn't needed. Everest does the same job for the most part. And he, in fact, suggests a short wheelbase Everest. Um, but won't happen unless Ford in South Africa does it. And I did some digging, and Justin, you're probably aware of this, but in January this year, Ford invested a billion dollars to modernise its plant um, mm. in, in, in South Africa, mainly for Ranger. Yeah. But it opened up the thought for me, maybe they could start eventually to build a right-hand Bronco or Bronco Sport. What are your thoughts on that? It's a, it's a good thing. I, I haven't necessarily... Uh thought of that myself but yeah i suppose if they've got the capacity to the thing is though that the bronco you know it's based on the t6 platform which is australian developed and engineered yeah. they're not building it you know in right hand drive in the states maybe they could in south africa but feasibly you'd think mechanically you know everything's there to make it work they just haven't done it yes. um so yeah. you know oh, gosh you'd love to see the bronco here oh same here well, I mean, Sukhoi Romantic makes the point. It doesn't come down to need or ability. It's about desirability. Yeah. And I, I get the feeling from the feedback we've had through this podcast and through the amount of clicks we've had on stories about Bronco that there's a lot of pent-up appetite for, yeah. uh, for that vehicle and maybe for Maverick as well. To that point, though, the Ford Australia boss uh, earlier this year, we asked the question about Bronco, you know, why aren't we going to see it in Australia? And essentially... They just don't see the volume for it, not necessarily in Australia, but in right-hand drive markets. Australia, maybe New Zealand, South Africa would probably be among the markets that would take it. But in total, uh, although there might be a lot of demand in Australia, we are a drop in the ocean. So that doesn't add up to right-hand drive production. So they just well, can't justify it. It's very interesting you say that because it emerges that Bill Catapotus is an economist um, because he's been running the numbers. And he said that, look, in a youth-obsessed country like Australia, uh, no matter how pessimistic I work the numbers, I see Ford making money, and that's on the Maverick. Um, 
says, and also, um, don't forget, Australia pioneered the car-based unit. It's about time a yeah. successor returns to our market, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So yeah. it was. It was in Gippsland, wasn't it, I think, uh, Justin? With the yeah. Aussie yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so desirability uh, plays a big role, but Bill can't make the numbers on Bronco um, add up. But uh, we, we, he says, he signs off by saying, but we sell Escape and Puma, et cetera, so who am I to say? <laughs> and it's kind of the, the watchword that we always go by is you never know. You never and look know. At, I mean, um, these, look these at things Palisade. change. Palisade was converted to right-hand drive almost exclusively yeah. for our market, you know, and, and it's selling well for Hyundai. I, I would make the point that I do think this is a patented Chester crystal ball prediction. Nice. I think we will see Bronco and Maverick in Australia. Right. Write that down. Uh, eventually. Eventually. Yeah. I, I think sometimes part of the problem with, with Ford, and I, I don't know that this is the case with, with, uh, with Bronco and Maverick, but I know it's the case with F-150, is that production is swamped for left-hand drive. There simply isn't capability to do right-hand drive, even if they wanted to. Um, but you never know. That could change in the next couple of years and, or, or for the next generation. Who knows? So I, I don't think it's, I think it's out now. I, I personally don't think it's out forever. Sure. But to JC's point with South Africa, potentially, again, that opens up the possibility. And who's not to say that Thailand eventually turns around and starts producing them as well? Yeah, I think, right. to your point, Chesto, though, they need to get production outside of the States because right. they're just yeah. so dedicated to their left-hand drive orders. Which is, which is, you know, bully for them. They've got a hot product and yeah. they can yeah. sell as many as they can make on current capacity. Um, I suppose it's always a big call to increase your capacity. Um, okay, mm. do we just run this one at full speed or do we put another one in? Big, big logistics. Yeah, it's expensive. expensive. It's expensive. Probably. It's expensive. Yeah. But we'll see. Who knows? All right. With that, we have reached the finish line and uh, it's time to say thank you, Justin. Thank you. And thank you, Chester. Thank you. And thanks to our digital demigod, apprentice rainmaker and indoor cricket coach, Mr. Pritchard, for his single-minded focus on podcast excellence. Today, he's wearing a T-shirt saying, I may be left-handed, but I'm always right. A high-vis kilt and boot sandals. They have to be seen to be believed, frankly. Jump into the conversation. Cars Guide is on Facebook and Instagram or email us at comments at carsguide.com.au. Apple Podcast listeners, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Five stars is the preferred rating, but um, if it has to be something other than that, let us know and we can try and improve. Um, if you enjoyed the epo episode, make sure you subscribe to the Cars Guide YouTube channel so you can stay on top of all our latest content. But before we go, a retired English couple were on a driving holiday in Florida, heading from Tampa across to Disney World just outside Orlando. They were closing in on Kissimmee, not far away, but they were hungry and decided to stop at a restaurant in town to get something to eat. They got hung up on the strange spelling on the roadsides and tried to work out how to pronounce the name. Kiss a me, kiss a me, kiss a me, kiss e me. Anyway, at the counter, the man said to the waitress, my wife and I can't seem to figure out how to pronounce the name of this place. Will you tell me where we are and say it very slowly so we can understand? The woman looked at him, paused and said, Burger King. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> One of the best. Oh.